Good morning. Well, let's face it. Life is full of daunting circumstances. Can everybody agree with that? Like, life is hard. There's nothing easy about life. I mean, think about parenting. Parenting alone is incredibly difficult. Parenting, it can be incredibly overwhelming, can it? Your kids are better behaved than ours. It's awesome. No, it is incredibly difficult. Navigating through a global pandemic, that's a little more than any of us can handle, right? That's been tough. Marriage, family, career, juggling all of those is never easy to do well. Why? Because life is tough. Circumstances are hard. Growing our faith, living on mission is a challenge, isn't it? And life throws all those things at us, those challenges, those difficulties. And what happens is those things can rob us of courage. And they can rob us of hope. And we're in a series uh, that we've been doing. It's going to be four weeks. We've got this week and next week. We'll end this series. But we're calling it Hope is Here. Because we all need some hope. And when life is hard, when life is difficult, we need hope. But here's the reality. If we're honest with ourselves... I think oftentimes many of us lack courage. Have you ever lacked courage in your life? I know I have. But here's what I've done. I've become a master at hiding it behind a tough exterior. Like I'm able to mask the fear, the lack of courage uh, by, by, by being tough on the outside. When on the inside, I'm plagued with fear. And we've all been there because deep down inside, we often fear what others think of us. We often fear getting bad news. We even fear what, what, could, what could possibly happen to our loved ones, right? Like when my grandmother was living, she used to fear that if any storm came through metro Atlanta, it was going to hit our house. And so she would call me and she would say, Eric, you and Nicole and the kids need to take cover. There are trees falling in Roswell. I'm like, Nana, we live an hour and a half from Roswell. Those trees are going to have to take a mighty large wind to get to our house. But that's what happens, right? We fear what could possibly happen to our loved ones, what could possibly happen to someone else. Listen, there are times when we lack courage in standing up for Christ where we live, work, and play. We oftentimes lack courage in inviting others to join us in church to be a part of what God is doing. Perhaps, it's more personal, perhaps you lack courage in being open and vulnerable with others. Like Sharon was talking about, being in community. Maybe that's your greatest fear right now. Why? Because you might have to be open and vulnerable with someone else. Sometimes we fear being honest about our own mistakes and owning our own mess. Sometimes we fear and lack courage to admit our own struggles that we're going through and allowing someone else to help carry the burden with us. And the reality is, all of us, when that happens, we need hope. When we are afraid, when we are scared, when life is throwing all that it has at us, we need hope. We need courage to overcome challenges. We need confidence to, to, to handle when life throws more, than, more at us than we can handle. I think that's why we like the underdog stories. Don't you love underdog stories? Like movies like Rocky 
and Rudy, don't they just fire you up? And hey, don't you right now, you just want to chant, Rudy, Rudy, Rudy. You can do it. Let's go, church. Rudy, Rudy, Rudy. Like, we love under, underdog stories. There's nothing like March Madness when a Cinderella team makes it to the Sweet 16. Or what about the, in baseball when a team goes from worst to first? We love that, right? I love Saturdays in college football because upsets are fantastic, as long as it's not the dogs. But watching Florida lose, man, that is glorious. Like, y'all cheer for that and you don't cheer for Jesus? What is wrong with you people? No, I'm just kidding. I'm joking. That is worthy of cheer. Uh, but anyway, let's get back to our message. So, but here, here's the reality. We love underdog stories. Why? Because in, it, woven within each of those stories is what? Hope. Hope is in every single underdog story. And we believe that, you know what, if, if, if they can overcome insurmountable odds, if they can gain victory, then perhaps, perhaps from our crippling fears, from our overwhelming circumstances, we too can win. And so we love these underdog stories. And today, we're going to be taking a look at perhaps one of the most famous stories in all of the Bible. It is a story that has become an analogy for the underdog. Anybody know what the story is? David versus Goliath, right? That is the ultimate underdog story right? Maybe. Perhaps what we're going to discover today is that all the things you learned about David and Goliath in Sunday school might not be all that they seem. Let's take a look in 1 Samuel chapter 17. So if you have your Bibles, you can uh, look at 1 Samuel chapter 17, and we're going to take a look at this incredible story of David versus Goliath. And we're going to begin in verse 1. And in, 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 in verse 1 it says this. Now the Philistines had gathered their armies for battle. And they were gathered in Soko, which, means, which belongs to, Jude, uh, to Jude, Judah, and, and encamped between Soko and Ezekiah and Ephes Damim. And Saul... And the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah. And they drew up battle lines against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the east side, excuse me, on one side. And the Israelites stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley between them. Now let's stop right there. Because here's what you need to know. 400 years before this event... Before this battle, before the two armies faced off, 400 years before that, God had promised to the nation of Israel that he would drive out all of the inhabitants of the land. He promised to the nation of Israel that he would defeat their enemies, that he would fight for them. And that promise is the backbone of, of this story. If we don't understand that promise that God made to the nation of Israel, that he would drive out the inhabitants of the land, we don't understand this story. But here's what we do know. Obviously, Israel failed. 
because the Philistines still inhabit the land. Now, let's be honest. The Philistines were a mighty, mighty military force. They were intimidating. They were strong. They were one of the first cultures to make weapons out of iron and bronze. I mean, these guys were tough. These guys were brutal. And, and they're still inhabiting the land. In fact, at this, at this point in time, the Philistines controlled three major cities along a trade route throughout the promised land. So they were a menace to the Israelites. They were trouble. And so they face off in battle. But here's the reality. Israel's failure was a failure of disobedience. They had disobeyed God. They refused to fight the Philistines. But had they believed God, had they put their trust in God and stood up against the mighty Philistines, guess what God would have done? He would have fulfilled his promise. He would have delivered them from the hands of the Philistines. He would have driven them out of the land. Why? Because God promised he would do it, and God always keeps his promises. But the Israelites disobeyed. Let's pick up in verse 4. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had a bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders, and the shaft of the spear was like a weaver's beam, which would be a really, really large beam, okay? And so it was like a weaver's beam. And, and then the spearhead weighed 600 shekels of iron, and his shield-bearer went before him, and he stood, and he shouted at the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? Are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourself and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. And when Saul and all the Israelites heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Let's stop right there. See, Goliath was the champion of the Philistines. He was a huge, huge man. He was a mighty warrior. He was a formidable opponent. And it says that he weighed, his height was six cubits in a span. You're going like, what on earth is that, right? Well, a cubit was the distance from your elbow to the tip of your fingers. Which means that that measurement varies from person to person, right? The distance from my elbow to the tip of my fingers is going to be different than yours. It's going to be different than yours. And so, that, so the, 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 the distance would vary. But here's what scholars believe. Based on what that, norm, that measurement normally is, Goliath would have been anywhere between 7 feet tall and 9 feet tall. Which is pretty tall, right? Now, either way, it doesn't really matter whether he's seven foot or nine foot. That's not the point. The point is that regardless of his size, he would have been heads and shoulders above any Israelite that he would have gone against. Because the average height of an Israelite in that day was five foot six inches. So at a minimum, 
Goliath had 18 inches over anybody he would face. And we know about David, we know that David was actually the run of his family. He was the smallest one in his family, so more than likely he was shorter than that. And if you know anything about hand-to-hand combat, which hopefully not many of you do, but maybe if you do, you know, 18 inches, 18 inches is a huge advantage. If you have 18 inches on someone, if you are 18 inches taller than one, you've got a huge advantage against them in hand-to-hand battle. And so that's the picture we have of Goliath. But not only is he a mighty warrior, not only is he tall, he's incredibly strong. In fact, the bronze armor that they said, it weighed 125 pounds. So just the armor this dude went out with weighed 125 pounds that he would carry into battle. The head of his spear, just the head, just the tip of the spear, weighed 17 pounds. And this is a strong, huge man. In verse 16, it says this, for 40 days. So just picture this. 40 days, the Philistine, he would come forward. And he would take his stand morning and evening. For 40 days, he taunted the Israelites. For 40 days, Goliath mocked their king, Saul. For 40 days, he made fun of their God. For 40 days, he ridiculed them, trashed them, challenged them. For 40 days, Goliath struck fear in the army of the Israelites. Now, at this point, David is still home with his father, Jesse. He's tending the sheep. He's, he's being a shepherd, which is what David's occupation was. So David is at home. Well, Jesse calls him up and says, David, I need you to do me a little Uber Eats run. I need you to take some food, and I want you to take it to your brothers who are on the battle line. And so here's what happens when David arrives. Let's skip down to verse 21. When David arrived there, this is what's going on. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. In verse 23. And as he talked to them, behold, the champion the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before, and David heard him. So, get this picture. Again, David shows up with food. He gives it to the keeper of the baggage. And he notices as the battle lines are formed, Philistines on one side, Israel on the other, Goliath steps out and begins his taunt one more time, and all of the Israelite army scampers back to their tents, changes their loincloth in fear. They're scared to death of him. Israel's army, clearly at this point, was not prepared for battle. They were not prepared to fight, were they? Life has a way of doing that to us, doesn't it? Life has a way of throwing things at us that we are not prepared to handle. Perhaps it's, it's a diagnosis we didn't expect. Maybe it's the, the discovery of news that we weren't hoping for. 
Maybe it's layoffs at work. Maybe it's your spouse is calling it quits. Maybe it's, 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 it's other things that life throws at. Maybe it's a temptation we didn't see coming. All those things get thrown at us, and we're not prepared for them. We're not ready for them. I mean, no one asks to be in a position where there's no clear route to victory, right? Nobody wants to be in that position. But that's exactly where the Israelites found themselves, in a place where there was no clear way of victory. But it's in those moments that you and I have a decision to make. We can decide that we're going to give up and we're going to accept defeat or that we're going to find our strength in God and we're going to trust him in those moments. That's our decision. We can decide one way or the other. And what David, when David sees what's going on, he asks two very insightful questions. The first question he asks is, what is the reward for taking this guy out? Like, if I go out and kill this guy, what am I getting? What's the reward? And the second question is this, who is this big oaf mouthing off about our God? Those are the two questions. Look at verse 26. Here's what David says. And David said to the men who stood by him, what shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach of Israel? So again, what's the reward? And second question, he says, For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? See, the answer to the first question reveals the fear that everyone had of Goliath. If you read on in the text, it says they said the the reward for killing Goliath was threefold. One, you would be made wealthy by King Saul. You would get riches from the king. Two, you would be given royalty because you would marry his daughter. You'd become royalty. And three, you and your entire family would be tax-free for the rest of your lives. Not a bad deal, right? Like you would think, based on that reward, that somebody, some crazy soldier would say, you know what, I'm going to take the risk. Because, I mean, wealth, royalty, being tax-free is not a bad deal. Unless you're not alive to experience it which shows the fear that everyone had of Goliath. But the second question, that's the one I want to focus on, because that's the one that is the most important of the two. See, it is that second question that reveals David's motivation. It is a second question that reveals David's heart. And we know that David is a man after God's own heart. You see, David, I love this, David never questions the outcome of the battle. He doesn't. He never questions the outcome. He assumes that God's going to bring victory. David never questions that. He simply wants to know who the blasphemer is. He simply wants to know who this joker is that is defying God so he can call him out by name. See, it's, it's as if David is saying, of course, whoever fights Goliath will win. It doesn't matter who goes out there. The battle is not theirs, it is the Lord's. It's almost like David saying, guys, don't you remember his promises? 400 years ago, God promised to deliver all the inhabitants of the land. That promise is still true today. And David's, David's saying, why hasn't anyone believed it? Why hasn't anyone acted upon it?
To make matters worse, David's brothers are there. And he, and he, gets, he has an encounter with his older brother Eliab, who clearly is not trying to win brother of, the, brother of the year. Look at verse 28. Now Eliab, the eldest brother, heard David when he spoke to the men. And Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he said, why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumptions and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle for yourself. I mean, Eliab is like, David, why are you even here? Aren't you supposed to be tending the sheep? Like, I know why you came. You came just to grab a bucket of popcorn and sit and watch the fight. You're not man enough to fight yourself. That's what Eliab's saying. And the irony of this moment is this. That some of the most discouraging opposition that Christians face is not from those outside the people of God. It is from those inside the people of God. See, sometimes the greatest opposition that we face are among ourselves. That's exactly what's happening to David. See, the biggest obstacles to the mission of God are the people of God. Like, if you ever see someone that gets fired up for Jesus, and they're ready to go and take on, take on the world with the gospel, perhaps they're a student, and the student gets fired up for Jesus, what happens to the other Christians in the school? Hey, buddy, just, just tone it down a little bit. Hey, maybe you should back off being such a fanatic. We do it as adults too, don't we? Somebody gets fired up about Jesus. It's like, oh, it'll be, a, you know, a new Christian comes in. Oh, it'll be, you'll get used to it. You'll be like the rest of us and just. Why? Because oftentimes the greatest opposition to the mission of God is the people of God. And in David's story, Goliath was not the problem. A leather strap and a stone will take care of that guy. The problem, the menacing giant in this story, is the unbelief that dominated the people of God. That's the real giant in David's story. It's unbelief. Now, I suspect that God was more insulted by the unbelief of Israel than he was by the defiance of Goliath. And we expect Goliath to be defiant, don't we? We expect him to respond that way. He's lost. He doesn't know the one true God. We expect him to respond with defiance against God. But the people of God should know better. The people of God should walk different. They should live different. The church should be a place of godly ambition. The church should be a place where faith abounds, right? Unfortunately, oftentimes, the church is a place of cowardly unbelief. See, oftentimes, the church is a place where we fail to believe God and His promises. I just want you to think for a moment, what could happen? What could happen if we actually believed that God's promises were true? 
What would happen in your own life? What would happen in your own marriage? What would happen in your own career? What would happen in your own neighborhood? If you, if you actually believed that what God has promised would come to be, what would happen? What, what would happen, church, if we actually expected God to show up when we gathered together as a church? What, what would happen if we actually expected God to move in our own hearts and in our own lives? Just think about what could happen. What could happen if we, say, if we believe, if we truly believe that God wanted to do something in us and through us to impact our world? What could happen? What would happen, church, if, if, if we were convinced that God wanted to reach our community with the gospel of Jesus Christ? What would happen? Listen, the walls could not contain the movement of God if we actually believed those things were to be true. Because God's movement has no walls. It has no boundaries. The thing that hinders it is unbelief among the people of God. That's what hinders God's movement in this world. But here's the good news. Hope... Hope is a byproduct of trust. Hope is a byproduct of trust. And here's what, I mean, here's what I mean by that. Listen, when you find yourself in that moment of struggle, when you find yourself in that moment of fear, when you find yourself in those overwhelming odds, that's when we have to go back to trust. Because when we go back to trust, we find hope. When we believe the promises of God are true, when we remind ourselves of, of all of God's promises, when we remind ourselves of how God has worked in the past and he can do it again, that's where we discover hope. That's where hope is renewed. Because hope is when we believe, when we truly believe that God is trustworthy. Church, that's when we find hope in the midst of our fears. That's when we find hope in the midst of our doubt. That's when we find hope in the midst of insurmountable odds when we begin to believe once again that God is trustworthy. Let's pick up on the story. Skip to verse 32. Here's what happens. It's getting, David said to Saul, the king, let no man's heart fail because of this man. Your servant will go out and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, you're not able to go against the Philistine to fight with him for you are but a youth. And he has been a man of war from his youth. Again, it is the unbelief of the people of God that is hindering the movement of God. But let's keep going. Verse 34. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion and a bear and a, and a, to take a, the lamb from the flock, I went after him and I struck him and I delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears. And this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them. For he has defied the armies of the living God. Verse 37. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And, David, uh, and Saul said to David, Go. And the Lord be with you. I mean, you see, don't you just hear Saul's cowardness in that? Okay, go. The Lord be with you. God bless you. 
Good luck. Somebody get the funeral march ready because David's going down. That's almost what the, the way it is with Saul. But here's what David knows. David knows that the battle is not his. David knows that the battle is the Lord's. He's not worried about this Philistine. In fact, he rejects Saul's armor and he, re he rejects Saul's uh, uh, weapons and he decides to opt for five smooth stones and a sling. That's what he opts for. I picked up this stone several years ago when Nicole and I were standing in the Valley of Elah, the very battle where this, this took place. One smooth stone. But why did David pick up five? Have you ever thought about that? David picked up five smooth stones. You know why he picked up five? It wasn't because he thought that he might miss. It wasn't because he thought that perhaps one stone wouldn't kill this giant. You know why David picked up five smooth stones? It was because Goliath had four brothers. Elsewhere in Scripture is recorded that Goliath, the giant from Gath, had four other giants from Gath that were his brothers. So David was not concerned about missing Goliath. He wasn't concerned about the stone hitting Goliath. He was concerned that if those other four brothers come down, God's going to take them out too. So I'm just going to prepare, and I'm going to have five smooth stones with me. Because remember, Goliath is not the problem. Unbelief is. Goliath's not the problem. He's not the issue. Let's pick up verse 40. Then he took his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the brook, and put them in his shepherd's pouch, and his sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. And the Philistine moved forward and came near David with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog? that you come out with me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beast of the field. And then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with sword and with spear and with the javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. Verse 46. This day... The Lord will deliver you into my hand. I will strike you down and I will cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and wild beasts of the earth. That all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear. For the battle is the Lord's. And he will give you into my hand. Remember, David is resting on that promise from 400 years earlier when God had promised to drive out the Philistines. So you say, listen, the battle's the Lord. He's already decided this. I'm just acting on that belief that God will deliver. Let's pick up in verse 48. And when the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag, took out his stone and slung it and struck the Philistine in the forehead. The stone, the, stone, the stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone. 
and he struck and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Now, this is a fascinating battle scene, isn't it? You have David versus Goliath. And our culture loves to say, you know what? This is such an underdog story. What an amazing underdog story. And our culture says, you know what? If you will just believe in yourself, then you can have victory. And our culture says, if you, if you will just believe, if you will just, no matter the odds, you can do it. And listen, we as Christians have even bought into this, haven't we? We bought into this idea and we put spiritual language on it. And we say, you know what, if you will just trust God, he'll give you victory. He'll give you victory over the giants in your life, whether it's a career, a lousy job, a bad relationship. God will give you victory if you'll just believe, if you'll just trust him. But here's the problem. That idea, that interpretation of this message misses the point entirely. It misses what God is trying to say. Yes, David overcame insurmountable odds. But here's the problem. The problem with interpreting this story as an underdog story is when you and I look at ourselves and view ourselves as David in the story. Now, this may be a shock. This may be something you've never heard before. But you and I are not David in this story. In fact, we are the cowering fearful Israelites in this story. We're not David. So who is David? Jesus is David. In this story, Jesus is David. Now let me show you how I came to that conclusion. This entire scene of David in conflict with Goliath is cast in the light of representative warfare. What would happen in those days is... Each army, instead of having a massive slaughter, would take one of their champions against the other army's champion, and they would fight. Representative warfare. This giant or this champion would represent this army. This champion would represent the other army. The two would fight, and whoever would win, the, other, the losing army would surrender. And so this is not a battle between David and Goliath. This is a battle between nations. But not only that, this is a battle between the God of Israel and the gods of this world. That's what this battle is. It is a battle between the nation, between the God of Israel and the gods of this world. You see, David doesn't go into battle with confidence because he's particularly worthy. He doesn't go into battle because he, he deserves to beat Goliath. He doesn't go into battle because he's stronger than the Goliath. No, what is he? He goes into battle because he knows that the battle is not his, it is the Lord's. That's why he goes into battle. And when David wins, I love this, when David wins, if you go and continue to read the story, the entire nation of Israel enjoys the victory. They celebrate the victory. They have triumphed in the victory without doing a thing. Without lifting a finger. They literally would not fight for 40 days. They were scared to death. And yet, when David wins the victory, they all rush in at that point. They all want to share in the victory at that point. 
yet they've not done a thing. And listen, you and I are in a similar situation to the nation of Israel. We are in the exact same situation. We need a representative to save us from the giant of sin. We need a representative to save us from the giant of separation from God. We need a representative to save us from the judgment of God. Humanity's most serious and fundamental problem, the problem behind all of the problems that are in our world, is the fact that we have sinned and we've fallen short of God's glory and that sin has separated us from God. That's our ultimate problem. And we need a representative to go and fight for us because you and I cannot do it on our own. Just like Israel versus Goliath, There is nothing that any of us can do about this problem. There is nothing that any of us can do about the giant of our sin. And we, like the Israelites, are hiding in our tents, not dealing with the threat of sin and judgment and death and separation from God because there's nothing that we can do about it. God's judgment looms over us as terrifying as the giant Goliath loomed over the army of Israel. You and I are powerless to stop it, to do anything about it. And we, like Israel, need a representative to challenge the giant of judgment, to overcome the giant of sin, to defeat the giant of, the, of our alienation from God. And Jesus, listen to this church, Jesus is our representative. Jesus is the one that overcame. Jesus is the one who fought the giant on our behalf. We stood on the sidelines and we've done nothing because we can do nothing. There's nothing we can do to redeem ourselves. But Jesus is the only one who, like David, really believed the promises of God. Jesus is the only one to run into the battlefield with the perfect confidence in God. He is the only one that could win the victory on our behalf. Despite our disobedience, despite our failure, Jesus is the only one that could represent us. Why? Because he's the only one that has been sinless. He is the only one that could redeem us. And church, until we grasp this story in light of Christ's victory, we will miss the central thrust of the story of David and Goliath. But once we recognize, once we grasp that that we are more like Israel than we are David, There's two practical lessons for us today. The first one is this. Because because Jesus took out the real giant, our sin, our separation, our alienation from God, because Jesus took out the real giant, you and I can bravely face all the lesser giants in our lives. See, the real giant in your life right now is not your present circumstances. The real giant in your life right now is not your particular situation. No, the real giant is the one that has already been defeated on Golgotha. The real giant is the giant of sin and death and separation from God. And listen to this, church, because you and I are in Christ, if you are a follower of Jesus, if you are a follower of Jesus, you have no need to be afraid of death. To live is Christ, and Paul said to die is what? Gain. You have no need to fear death. If you are in Christ, if you are a follower of Christ, you have no need to fear uncertainty. 
You have no need to fear the insanity of the world that we live in. You have no need to fear pain in relationships. You have no need to fear the disapproval of others. You have no need to fear whatever life throws at you. Why? Because Christ has already defeated the real giant. The second truth is this. Through the story of David and Goliath, God gives his people, you and I, a pattern for how we will overcome the lesser giants that we face. See, look, David's story, like all the Old Testament stories, ultimately primarily point to the work of Jesus Christ. The entire Old Testament, from the beginning until the end of the Old Testament, is pointing to the work of Christ. The New Testament is revealing the work of Christ that has happened through the Gospels, okay? That's the, that's the Bible in a nutshell. So every time you read the Bible, if you read the Old Testament, just look at it and say, okay, how does this point to Jesus? Because that's ultimately what it's doing. It's pointing to the Messiah. It's pointing to Christ. And so in, in, this, in this story, this story of David and Goliath is pointing to the work of Jesus Christ. And so like the people of Israel, when we see Jesus the true David, when we see him conquer sin and death, the true giant, we should respond just as the nation of Israel responded. How did they respond? They triumphantly followed Christ in his victory. Their response was to follow David in the victory. So you and I, as Christ's followers, we're to follow him in his victory. See, the kingdom of God is a kingdom of advance. It is never a kingdom of retreat. God's kingdom wants to advance in your life, personally and then in, throughout our community. What do I mean by that personally? See, God's kingdom wants to take more and more ground in your own heart. God's kingdom is designed to consume every aspect of our lives. It's not like we hold areas back in our life and say, okay, God, you can have this part, but this one over here I'm going to hold on to myself. No, the kingdom of God is a kingdom of advance, and it will constantly be driving us to more and more and more surrender. To more and more and more holiness. To more and more and more godliness. That's what the kingdom of God does. It drives us to more, to become more and more like Christ. And so, as his followers, our pattern when we face giants is to become more and more like Jesus. To follow him triumphantly into the battle. To, to realize that he's already won the battle. And see, the kingdom of God is a kingdom of advance. But just as in David's day, it's the same in our day, that obstacles, obstacles are going to come from both inside and outside the church that are going to threaten to hamper what God wants to do in and through you. And we need to understand that. We need to know that there are going to be obstacles thrown in your way. The moment you decide to live for Christ, the moment you decide that I'm going to surrender everything I have to Jesus Christ is the moment you should start expecting obstacles. Just expect them. They're going to happen. They're going to come from inside the church. They're going to come from outside the church. Why? Because they want to, the, 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 our enemy wants to do anything he can do to impact and influence and hamper and stop the work that God wants to do in you and that God wants to do through you. 
And we need to understand that. And we need to understand that the size of Goliath was not the problem for David. And the size of the obstacles in our lives that keep us from holiness, the size of the obstacles in your life that keep you from becoming more like Jesus, the size of the obstacles that keep you from becoming all that God wants you to be and all, and all that God wants to do in and through you, the size of those obstacles is not the problem. The more significant problem, the, the true problem, is the smallness of our confidence in God. And the smallness of our view of who God is. See, when you and I expand our view of who God is, those obstacles begin to get smaller and smaller and smaller. And see, but here's the problem. Here's the challenge. I think so often we get so comfortable in our view of who God is that those obstacles seem looming. Because we view God like, I, I, I've heard this analogy before, but we kind of view God like a little pond. If you enjoy fishing, you know, if you've ever fished in a little pond, you realize like you know every nook and cranny of that pond. And oftentimes we view God that way until we realize that God is a vast ocean that we cannot experience all of who he is in a lifetime. But when we realize that the, the view we often have of God is so small and so tiny, and yet who he is is so vast and so enormous that we would never be able to comprehend it. It's not until then that those, those lesser giants begin to shrink. Because see, what we need to do, church, if we're going to overcome the obstacles that life throws at us, we have to have a greater and bigger view of who God is. We don't need to limit it to our finite minds. But we need to realize that he is bigger and more powerful and more loving and more gracious than any of us could ever dream and ever imagine. But until we do, until we expand our view of who God is, until we expand our view of who Jesus is, until we delight in him and the treasure that he actually is what will happen is we will remain fearfully in our tents and we will miss out on all that God wants to do in us and through us because we're unwilling to make any risk in our spiritual lives. So church, let's expand our view of God. Let's see him for who he is. And he is far beyond anything any of us could ever hope or imagine. And so, God, we admit and we acknowledge that you are vast and you are glorious and you are mighty and you are beyond comprehension. And none of us, none of us could grasp the magnitude of who you are. But the challenge with that, Lord, is the fact that sometimes because we can't grasp, we, we focus on what is comfortable to us. And when we focus on the smallness of what we know about you, those obstacles around us get greater and greater and bigger and bigger. And as a result, Father, we, we cower in fear. And we're a whole lot like Israel in this story of David and Goliath. Not, really, not realizing just how vast and how great our Lord is. And so, Father, help us. Help us to, 
to, to treasure you more. Help us to realize that there is so much more you want to do in and through us, that we would, that we would cast our thoughts and our souls to, towards you, that our focus and our eyes would be fixed upon Jesus, who is the author and the perfecter of our faith. Lord Jesus, help us to put our focus on you. You are our treasure. You are our giant killer. You are the one. You are David in this story who has defeated sin. You've defeated our alienation from you, our separation from you. And you've made it possible for us to have fellowship and, and, and be in relationship with you, Lord. Give us confidence in that truth. Give us hope in that truth. And church, if anyone is here today or here on, or watching online that has never placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you've never realized that Jesus is the one that has con- conquered the true giant in your life. My prayer for you today is that today would be the day that you believe. Today would be the day that you realize that Jesus, through his death, his burial, and his resurrection, has conquered the giant of sin and death and separation from God. And that today you would believe by faith that his work on the cross, his resurrection from the grave, is sufficient to redeem you to save you and you would simply say Lord Jesus I surrender to you I want to follow you and I want to walk in the victory that you have won for me and Father for those of us that are your followers expand our view of who you are help us to rest in your victory in your triumph and to remind ourselves of that every single day So that we can be a part of a kingdom of advance. A kingdom that wants to take all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. A kingdom that wants to see our neighbors, our family members, our co-workers, people where we live, work, and play. Become a part of this kingdom because we carry the gospel to them. Give us strength to do so in Jesus' name. Amen.